1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. If you are using the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, you can find the passage on page 958. Again, this morning's passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. Please join me in standing as we honor the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. And now we're asking for your spirit to come and accompany the preaching of this passage so that the truthfulness and the goodness and the beauty of your word, of scripture, may be clearly proclaimed and received in every heart in this room. We pray all this for your glory and for the good of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, this is not the first time I've said this, and it certainly won't be the last. But if it weren't for our commitment to preach expository sermons through whole books of the Bible, you probably wouldn't be hearing a sermon this morning on head coverings. Because if I was just preaching topics that I found to be of interest or just themes that I thought might be relevant to you, I would not gravitate towards 1 Corinthians 11. But as a church, we are committed to preaching chapter by chapter through whole books of Scripture and doing it in an expository manner, which basically means that we are allowing the main point of the passage to determine the main point of the sermon. And it's because of this commitment 
to preaching in this way, that is what leads us to preach a passage this morning on head coverings. Now, before you get offended, and before uh, you tune me out or tune this passage out, let me just say right up front that I don't think any of you ladies are necessarily in violation of what's being taught in this text just because you didn't wear a head covering this morning. As far as I can tell, I don't think there are any head coverings out there. Don't feel guilty. Don't feel ashamed because your head is uncovered. But that doesn't mean that we can just disregard everything that's being taught in this passage and just to consider it as an obsolete ancient custom or to see it as an outdated, culturally regressive attitude towards women. I do believe there actually is a biblical principle being taught here and later reinforced in chapter 14 and also in other places in Paul's letters. And it's a principle that does transcend any one church and any one culture. It's a principle that I believe still holds true for the present. Even as we agree that wearing a head covering at church is not binding for any woman today, there still is something here in this text that is binding, that is relevant for all of us. And the challenge, of course, is discerning within the text that that biblical principle, generally applicable in any age or culture, and distinguishing that from any culturally specific expression of that biblical principle, which it may have made sense in first century Corinth, but not necessarily in society today. That, my friends, is the difficult but necessary task of sound biblical interpretation. If you want to know how to read your Bible and to apply it today, this is what you have to do in many instances as you're, as you're studying Scripture. Now, I want you to understand, I agree that the Bible was written in a particular uh, age um, that, uh, and, and to a particular culture. And so that's why it's going to sound strange to us today. And so I understand if some of you do wrestle with portions of the Bible, like like this one, that seem to support regressive and demeaning attitudes towards women. I understand that's why some of you are probably hesitant to treat all of Scripture as authoritative, all of it as applicable for us today. There are portions of it that you might consider outdated. You might be consider, you consider it embarrassing. You, perhaps you, you feel embarrassed that, that we, we just read that passage as just read. Now, I agree. Like I said, I agree the Bible was written in, in, to, in a particular age to a particular culture, very different than ours. So, uh, yes, it's true that we can't always just draw a straight line from any command you find in Scripture to a contemporary application. 1 Corinthians 11 is, is a prime example. That's not always a straight line. But I, I don't agree with wholesale ignoring portions of Scripture just because we consider it to be strange or obsolete. Because 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 does say that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is profitable for teaching. And so while the head covering itself might be obsolete today, what it symbolized back then is still true. And still, it is still relevant for how we ought to conduct ourselves and how we ought to worship in the present. So it's not going to be easy, 
but I think we can do it. I think we can chew on a passage like 1 Corinthians 11 and be nourished by its generally applicable teaching while at the same time spitting out the bones of any culturally specific expressions that don't fit our context today. I think we can do it. So let's, let's consider this text together, and I want to show you three things as we're walking through this text. If you want to follow along, just look in your bulletin. There's an outline there. And first, we're going to consider the biblical principle that is highlighted in this text. And second, we're going to consider the cultural expression of that principle that was disregarded back then by the Corinthians. And third, we'll consider the general application for churches in our day and age. So let's begin by identifying this biblical principle that's highlighted here in the text. And it's really found and summarized in verse 3. And so we're going to look at verse 3 carefully. But before we go there, let's, let's set the context. You, you need to understand uh, the, the, the chapters that he came before. And for those of you that have been with us, you, you, you hopefully remember the context. But some of you, I know, this is your first time here. Uh, you're coming back uh, after a summer break. So let me set the context. Um, since chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been in this mode of addressing various issues that either they brought up, the Corinthians brought up in a letter they sent to him previously, or uh, that he heard through an oral report. And so, so far, uh, we've seen him addressing these issues that have been troubling the church, uh, dividing members into different factions. Uh, uh, It's had to do with uh, their differences on sex and marriage, found in chapter 7. And uh, recently, we've been looking at chapters 8 through 10, focusing on their differences when it comes to eating food offered to idols. Now, starting in chapter 11, and the remaining issues that we're going to be seeing, they all have to do with the right ordering of their corporate worship. What you do and how you behave when you gather together as the assembled church. So he's going to talk about how they conduct the Lord's Supper. He's going to talk about the proper uh, use of certain spiritual gifts in their worship. But for our purposes in today's text, he's going to talk about how men and women dress and how they behave when they assemble in a worship setting. Now, I know at first glance, in verse 2, if you look there, it it seems to suggest that the Corinthians were maintaining this tradition, this tradition where wives would wear head coverings to church. But as you read on, it's apparent that at least some of the wives were not. So verse 2 is usually understood to be Paul's way of just tactfully softening the blow of the correction that he's about to bring to them in the following verses. So listen to verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. So, you know, it's clear that they're not in complete rebellion to Paul's apostleship. There are many who still respect his apostolic authority. But, of course, as we've seen, there are others who doubt it. And so it's gotten to the point that some wives in the church were being directly encouraged to reject head coverings, or at least they were were being tacitly supported uh, to do so. And so in verse 3, Paul wants to reiterate Uh, the apostolic traditions that he has taught them in the past that pertain to this particular issue. So look at verse 3 again. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. I think this verse is key to understanding this entire passage. And it really comes down 
to how Paul is metaphorically using the word head. He's describing for us three relationships. First, every man in relation to Christ. Second, a wife in relation to her husband. And third, Christ in relation to God. So three relationships, and in each relationship, notice how one party functions as the head of the other. Now, historically, the Greek word here for head, when used in a metaphorical sense, has conveyed a sense of authority, like how we speak of a head of household or a head of state. But there have been more recent attempts to argue that when Paul speaks of your head metaphorically, he doesn't have in mind your authority, but rather your source, just as we would speak of uh, the head of a river. Then we're talking about the source, so the origin of that river, not, not its authority. And commentators who favor this interpretation would point to verse 8 to support it. There, Paul is reminding us that Adam was not made from Eve, but it was Eve from Adam. So in other words, woman originates or, or finds her source in man. And the whole, point of, 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 the whole point behind this interpretation is really to move away from the idea that, that a husband's headship implies his authority over his wife. But I think this interpretation falls flat for two reasons. First, it's because extensive word studies have confirmed that when used metaphorically, head in, in the Greek, it actually does convey authority. And second, interpreting it to mean source is going to lead you to some theological problems. Well, just look at verse 3. Remember, Paul is highlighting a parallel between all three of these relationships. So, okay, suggesting that Christ is the source of every man, okay, yeah, that works. Man is the source of woman, okay, yes, we just saw that in Genesis. But God is the source of Christ? That actually sounds a bit like the ancient heresy of Arianism, which taught that the Son, the Son of God, had a source, that he had an origin, that he was the first of God's creation. And we know that's not right theologically. And so it's apparent that that's not what Paul means when he's speaking of a head. Now, I know there's a lot more that can be said on just this one point. And there's like total, you know, there's books written just about, you know, arguing about the, words, the word uh, uh, that was used uh, in the Greek. But bottom line, what I'm suggesting here is that I think we're on more solid ground exegetically and theologically, if we stick to the historic interpretation of head as a term that conveys authority. But, church, I understand that the idea of a husband having headship has been historically problematic. It has been used to justify male chauvinism. It has been used to legitimize domestic abuse. And those are horrible things. Those are horrible uses of this biblical concept. So I know when we hear a husband has authority over his wife, I, I, I know our instinct. When you hear that, your instinct is to recoil because we instinctively interpret authority in a negative sense as something that's self-serving and likely to be abused. And that's 
why it's so important for us to understand the parallel that Paul is drawing between these three relationships in verse 3. Yes, Paul is saying that a husband has headship. He has authority over his wife. But it's in the same way that Christ has authority or headship over every man or how God has headship, authority over Christ. And so just think about those relationships, those other two. I mean, according to Scripture, Christ's headship over us is the exact opposite of self-serving. It's self-sacrificial. He demonstrated his authority, not by demanding to be served, but by, but by serving us, by giving of his own life as a ransom for many. That's how Christ uses his authority to die for you, to die for your sins, to make a way of forgiveness and salvation. That's his authority being exercised. And, and, and think about, according to Scripture, how God the Father does have headship over the Son as seen in the fact that you read the Gospels. It's the Father who sends the Son. It's not the other way around. The Son never sends the Father. And it's the Son who says that he has come to do the Father's will. It's not the Father doing the Son's will. And so, yet, so you see that there is a headship between God the Father and God the Son in his earthly ministry, and yet the Father's headship over the Son does not in any way imply that he is superior to the Son. The historic doctrine of the Trinity teaches that God the Father and God the Son, of course, along with God the Spirit, are equal in being and worth, but different in role and function. Equal in being and worth, different in role and function. And I think that's how Paul would understand a husband's headship over his wife. He would say to us, look, if you want to understand this concept, don't look to the world. Don't look to their use of authority. Look to the Godhead. Look to how God uses authority. You see, from the world's perspective, authority is just a mere, it's just a mere exercise of raw power. That's all it is. But God demonstrates that the right use of authority is not self-serving, but self-giving. It's not antithetical to love and kindness. In fact, it's actually a beautiful expression of his love. That's what, that's what Paul shows us in another one of his letters in, in Ephesians 5, 25, describing that kind of love as, 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 as beautiful and as a love to be exemplified in marriage from a husband loving his wife. So in no way, friends, are we suggesting that a husband is superior to his wife. Now, his headship does not make him better or wiser or godlier. A husband and his wife can be one flesh, equal in worth, while at the same time different in role and function within their marriage. I think that's what those parallels in verse 3 are meant to convey. It's conveying that biblical principle that a husband has headship in the marriage. And Paul's point is that a wife should dress in a culturally appropriate manner in order to convey that headship. And, of course, in his day, that could have been accomplished by wearing a head covering. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, okay, I, I get how head coverings are culturally rooted, 
But what about the concept of male headship itself? I mean, what if that way of viewing the roles between a husband and wife, what if that as well is rooted in a specific cultural moment and therefore not applicable for marriages today? Fair question. That's a fair question. You know, I'd still argue that male headship is a biblical principle generally applicable in any age and in any culture because of the way that Paul roots this idea, not in any one specific culture, but notice how he roots it in the order of creation itself. Look with me in verses 7 to 9. Let me read that again. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So notice here he's making allusions to the first two chapters of Genesis. Here in verse 7, he says a man shouldn't wear a head covering because he is the image and glory of God. And it's that image of God language that's grounded, of course, in Genesis 1. And then look in verse 8. He's alluding to the Genesis 2 creation account where it says uh, in Genesis 2 that Adam was created first, and then Eve was made subsequently from one of his ribs. And we're also told there that she was created to serve as a helper fit for him. So from that Genesis 2 account, Paul is drawing the inference that there is a a, a firstness to man. Man was made first, and woman was made from him and for him. Now, I understand that in our culture, the culture would tell you that to be first is to be the best. That to be second place means you're just the first loser. Right? And that's, that's how our culture would understand firstness. But that's not how the Bible understands firstness, especially firstness within a family. To be first simply means that you are assigned a responsibility. You have a role to play that has not been assigned to the second. And that's why in Scripture, it's the firstborn. The firstborn son has this responsibility to lead whenever his father passes. It's not because he's better or smarter or superior to his siblings, but simply because he was born first. And also, from a biblical perspective, the idea that a woman was created to function as a helper, from a biblical perspective, that's not inherently demeaning. Now, I, I granted, yes, from the world's perspective, it totally is. Because from the world's perspective, helpers are considered inferior to their leaders. But you have to understand that in multiple places throughout Scripture, God identifies himself as our helper. He embraces the role of a helper And so by doing so, God is, I think, he's challenging any condescending notions that we have towards the act of helping. And he's also restoring the role of helper to its rightful position of dignity. So sisters, if God is neither offended nor ashamed to bear the role of helper, then neither should you. A wife is equal to her husband while performing a different role because her worth doesn't come from the role that she plays but from the image of God that she bears like don't buy the societal lie that your worth is tied up in your role 
in what you do and how and how and what you can contribute. No, that's not where your 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 worth is found. Your worth is found in the Imago Dei, the image of God in you. You are priceless because you are made like all men in the image of God. And in case any man fails to see that, Paul includes an important qualifier right here in verses 11 to 12, reminding all of us of the equal status between men and women. Look at verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. So friends, that's so important. Because whenever we teach on male headship, it's so important that we balance that teaching with a reaffirmation of the mutuality and interdependence that's found between men and women. And of course, we need to stress our equal and utter dependence on God and his headship over all of us. We all stand in the same plane, the same level before God. So, male headship, that's the generally applicable principle being taught here. And a culturally specific application of that principle in Paul's day would have been for wives to wear head coverings. But, as we see in Corinth, there were some wives showing up to church with their heads uncovered, which leads us to our second point, the cultural expression disregarded. Let's see how this biblical principle of male headship was being undermined by a disregard of a culturally accepted symbol of a husband's authority. But first, let's clarify. Let's clarify the identity of this head covering because some think that Paul was really just talking about hair length or hairstyle, that wives were no longer you know, putting the, their hair up in a, in a neat way on, on their head. Instead, they were just kind of letting it flow you know, uh, you know, just, just freely. This is something that's what Paul was referring to. And they, they would point to what he says in verses 13 to 15. I, I'll read that again. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. So, so that's why some people think that Paul is advocating for just a, a culturally appropriate length of hair or a particular hairstyle. But I, I actually, I think that's missing the point of verses 14 to 15. I mean, yes, of course, he is pointing to the culturally appropriate difference in hair length between men and women in his day, but he's only pointing to that as an analogy in order to emphasize that there are culturally culturally appropriate distinctions between men and women that you will find in any culture, in any society. And men and women will naturally feel a sense of shame, a sense of disgrace, to appear differently. I think that's what he's really getting at here. So when he says in verse 14, look at verse 14, when he says that nature itself teaches you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, you just have to remember that Paul is speaking to 
a, a first-century Greco-Roman society. He's speaking to first-century Greco-Roman men who all wore their hair short. If you want confirmation of that, just go to any museum, look at the ancient statues, Roman statues, and you'll see that all the men have short hair. All the Caesars have short hair. And he knew that these men would feel naturally shame to appear publicly with a feminine hairstyle or to be wearing feminine attire. That, my friends, is the natural phenomenon that he has in mind here. I mean, it would be like, like in most cases today, I, I, I wouldn't say it's universal anymore, but in most cases today, it would, be, it would still be shameful if a man showed up to church wearing a dress. Right? I mean, just the natural aversion that we have towards any transgression of a cultural norm is what Paul has in mind here. But of course, I understand. I, I totally get it that some would argue that society, that our society has shifted to a new normal, to, to a non-binary standard where, you know, the old lines between what is mas- considered masculine or feminine have now been blurred or maybe they've just been removed altogether. So for some people today, they would feel no shame. They have no problem um, if you know, a man showed up to church wearing a dress. They wouldn't see that as, as, as a shameful thing. And granted, I, I, I know that that's in our society, there probably is going to be people who have no problem with that. But even if it's true that our society as a whole has, has transgressed or crossed a traditional cultural line of of, of of what kind of hair or what kind of clothes are appropriate for men and women, even if we have crossed a line, the line doesn't disappear altogether. The line just gets moved. That's that's the point I I want you to understand. And, And that shame, the shame is always still there. The shame is still something that people feel no matter how much the culture has changed, no matter how much it has shifted, you still naturally feel shame if you don't appear consistent with how you perceive yourself to be. Just ask any non-binary person. I'm talking about a person who has rejected the concept of, of masculine and feminine. They, they would consider themselves non-binary. Just ask how they would feel if they were forced to dress in traditional masculine or feminine attire. They would hate that. They would be ashamed to be seen publicly wearing that. So the style of hair or the style of dress, it's all cultural. But shame is natural. And this idea of shame, I believe, is what underlies Paul's point if you look in verses 4 to 6. In verses 4 to 6, he's speaking to those who live in a shame-honor society, and he's employing that language of shame and honor. So look at verse 4 with me again. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors or shames his head, that being Christ. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors or shames her head, her husband, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful or shameful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. 
So Paul's point here is that in the Corinthian church, a wife's refusal to wear a head covering is as shameful as if she had showed up to church with a shaved head. He, he, he's, that, that's the, the point he's making here. Now, now granted, I, I realize in our day, a shaved head for, for a woman is not necessarily shameful. I mean, just, you know, just think about just with, the, with chemotherapy being so commonplace today, we, we probably wouldn't feel shame or feel Feel or feel ashamed for a woman who shows up to worship with a shaved head. We probably would feel compassion. We would probably assume that that that, that she is sick and that she needs care. So I, I get it. That this again, that he's speaking to a particular uh, age and culture. But again, that, that's where you got to take into account there are cultural norms in first-century Greco-Roman society. And in in recent years, there's just been a lot of extensive scholarship demonstrating conclusively that married women in that society, in Paul's day, commonly wore a veil in public as a sign of being married. And that was just a common practice, that wives, when they go out in public, would have a head covering. And now we're talking really here about a thin headscarf. It's just a, a, something very thin, just kind of going over the head. We're not talking about something covering the face. We're not talking about a burqa. I know that's, that's, that's what you might instinctively picture. When you hear head covering, you're thinking of, you know, a burqa, that's, that's you know, what's common in, in Islamic cultures, where, you know, the woman's whole head and whole face, maybe even whole body, are covered up. But that's not what they wore in Corinth, because there was nothing shameful in the first century church about a woman showing her face in public. Her feminine beauty was not viewed as a threat or a temptation. It's not about covering that up. The veil over her head was intended to serve as a positive sign, as a symbol of a wife's modesty, chastity, and glad submission to her husband's headship. That's just one way that she would honor her husband publicly through wearing that veil. But as verse 5 says, To be in church praying or prophesying with her head uncovered would do the exact opposite. It would shame and dishonor her husband publicly. Now, you probably are wondering why some Corinthian wives were refusing to wear that veil. Was it simply out of spite for their husbands? Maybe. Maybe there was conflict in in particular marriages. But it's also possible that the underlying the, 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 the reason is the same underlying reason that we've already seen in chapters 7 to 10. Remember, new Christians were embracing their newfound freedom in Christ. But the problem is that they were taking it way too far. They were claiming freedom from any societal obligation, from any cultural expectation, and they were championing that freedom. They were giving no regard to the impact that it was having on others around them. So some Christian spouses assume that now in Christ, we are free from any conjugal duties, any conjugal responsibilities. That's chapter 7. Some Christians with strong consciences were assuming that they were now free to eat food offered to idols in any and whatever context. Who, you know, who cares what other people think? I'm free. And apparently, some Christian wives assume that they were now free of their husband's headship, or at least free from the cultural norms that symbolize that headship. But Paul's point, his whole point since chapter 7, 
has been to argue that though we are free in Christ, that is a biblical principle that is central to the gospel, friends, we can't ignore the public perception of our public deeds and decisions. The attitude that says, I don't care what other people think, I'm free in Christ. That attitude is not motivated by Christian love and mission. Church, we cannot just simply disregard public perception. We are being watched. I think that's what verse 10 is trying to say. Look at verse 10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. (laughs) A very obscure reference there, but I think what he's saying is that the world's watching. Even angels are watching. So we have to give careful consideration to how our actions are publicly perceived. And that, of course, means we have to be well-versed in the culture in which we live so that you can express biblical principles, principles like male headship, in ways that are culturally understandable in the culture in which you live. That's what he's saying. And that leads us, of course, to our third and final point. Let's think about our culture. And let's consider how the principle of male headship can be generally applied in our church today. How can men and women express and honor this biblical principle in culturally understandable ways? Now, I think it's safe to say that a head covering is not going to send that intended message. At best, people are going to interpret whatever she has on her head as a fashion statement. At worst, like with a burqa, a wife's head being covered would be viewed as a demeaning sign of her subservience to her husband. Most people are not going to interpret that as a positive symbol of of her husband's self-giving, Christ-like headship. They're not going to see it that way. Now, when trying to identify a modern-day equivalent, some would point to you know, that age-old practice, that age-old custom of a wife taking on her husband's surname. That practice has, uh, ha- has enough cultural traction for so many generations in Western society that to have refused to have taken her, her husband's last name would have been a way of dishonoring and, and shaming her husband. And so, yeah, you know, some people point to that. But I would say that's more of a historic example because nowadays that custom is not as universally practiced anymore, and it never really was in more Eastern cultures. I mean, just for example, in Chinese, the characters in a woman's name, they don't get changed when she gets married. She doesn't adopt her husband's last name in, in her Chinese characters. That's really a Western tradition. That's found in Western society. And nowadays, many would, are, would in Western society would disregard that custom, viewing it as a legacy of historic patriarchy within Western civilization. But, you know, I, I'm sure, I, I, I'm sure there are many wives today who still gladly take their husband's last name, wanting to honor him, wanting to signal his headship. But I'm sure... At the same time, many wives today keep their own last names for all sorts of reasons with no intent to dishonor her husband. And so it's a good historic example, but I, I, I don't think it's generally applicable today. 
So is there any modern-day equivalent of a head covering? Is there something that a wife can wear that would serve as a culturally recognizable sign of her husband's headship? To be honest, I don't know if there is. In a highly pluralistic, multicultural society like the one that we are living in today, I'm not sure if there are still any widely recognizable symbols that are widely agreed upon conveying a male headship. At least I can't think of any. If you could think of some, I'd love to dialogue with you about that. But this is only, of course, if you're asking me about what a woman can physically put on and wear. If you're only talking about some kind of physical adornment, I can't think of any. But it still remains true that she can always spiritually adorn her inner person in a way that does affirm her husband's headship. And I think that's exactly what 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4 is trying to say to us. 1 Peter 3, 4 says that a wife can always adorn, quote, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So I'm hesitant to suggest any modern-day equivalent of a head covering. But I have no reservation in exhorting wives in our church to carry yourself at church or at home or wherever God leads you, to carry yourself in a way that honors and affirms your husband's headship. So think about your, your, your demeanor towards him. Think about the way that you speak to him or about him. Think about the way you pray for him, about the way you pray for him to grow as a leader in your marriage, for your family. All of that, it's not about what you wear. It's about what's in your heart. And that transcends any particular culture, any particular age. So sisters, that's what you can put on when you come to church. That's what you can focus on adorning yourself when you show up here. And brothers, oh brothers, I hope you, hope you realize that this passage applies to us as much as it does to our sisters. Don't think that you're in the clear just because you managed to keep your head uncovered. You can do your part. You can do your part to honor and preserve the principle of male headship by embodying the inner qualities of courage and compassion, kindness and conviction, strength and selflessness. Because those are the very qualities that characterize Christ and his love for his bride, for the church. Christ died for us and for our salvation. That's what headship looked like when it was being exercised by Christ. So brothers, if your headship looks like dying to self for the spiritual good of others, then that makes it a joy and blessing for your wife and your children to live under your headship. So put that on, put on that attitude when you come to church. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this text. I know, Lord, it still has, there's a lot of questions that we still have. I thank you that we have this community. We have this church to wrestle with these questions, to wrestle with our, our, um, 
We're to wrestle with the word and with our culture and to try to fit it all together and to be faithful to your word in the culture that we live in today. Thank you, Lord, that we have the church to figure this out with together. Guide us, O oh Lord, as a body. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.